Well, hello, everybody. Good to see you. If you're new here at Emmanuel, my name is Joel, and it's a privilege to be talking to you if you're in the Shoreham site of Emmanuel, if you're in North Hove, if you're in South Hove, if you're in Central Brighton, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you for being with us today, this Sunday. Uh, this term, we are going through the letter of the Philippians, and today we are launching this series. Uh, the title of this series is Joy has a name. Joy has a name. We're, we're looking at a letter written by a prisoner, a political prisoner in a dungeon, chained to a guard. And dungeons in the first century uh, in Rome, probably, uh, we don't know precisely where the Apostle Paul was being in prison, but we, we think probably Rome is likely. Not a pretty place, not, not a five-star hotel, not even a modern prison uh, in the UK. Uh, to compare it with, it, it, would be, it would be more close to what you might imagine in a kind of medieval cartoon, uh, I suppose, except it wouldn't be funny. Uh, this guy is suffering, he's languishing. Uh, he's probably at a later stage, well, he is. He's, he's I guess, in his kind of later years of his life. He knows that any time he could be called up for execution, that comes up uh, in the letter. This is a, a man in a dark, lonely, and persecuted condition. But it's one of the happiest letters that you're likely to ever come across. By any standard, anybody who reads the letter to the Philippians would end up agreeing that a prevailing theme is joy. This man is not only joyful, he's kind of, he's kind of almost annoyingly joyful. He is... He is uh, contagiously joyful. He wants you to also be joyful. He keeps telling you to rejoice and he reminds you again, rejoice, because he believes there is something to rejoice about. He is persuaded, he is convinced to the core of who he is of something so richly joyful in its, in its substance, in its implications so transformingly, beguilingly, <laughs> joy-giving that his letter kind of drips with this tone and this atmosphere. And so it's a fascinating letter. It's a strange and surprising letter for us to read. And I, I want us to look at it over these next few weeks with expectation that we will learn how to live. We will learn how to think differently how to know things differently, how to live and respond differently. And by doing so, perhaps taste more of the joy he describes that is available in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So that's really a, a kind of quick intro. There's so much more that needs to be said in terms of the theme of the letter and, and where it's going and why it was even written. Some of that will come up as we go through it in the coming weeks. I encourage you to do some of that homework yourself. Uh, there are some good resources that we are going to mention now and then to encourage you to look into, to help you to study the letter. It's always worth our attention. This stuff is explosive. It's dynamic. It is life-changing. This stuff is dangerous. Okay? When we open this book, anything could happen because these are the words of the living God that come out to grab us. 
And so we almost need to do this with a sense of trepidation, with a sense of preparing ourselves for what might take place. And to do so, let's pray. Let's ask him to speak to us. So we'll just have the scripture come up right now on the screen. And then directly afterwards, I'll just pray. And then we'll get into what it has to say to us here in 21st century Brighton, Hove and Shoreham. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Father, we do thank you for these words of scripture. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who these words help us to know, help us to see. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Lord, would you prepare our hearts and would you speak deeply to us? Lord, that we could learn to respond with trust towards you, confident in all that you are, all that you've done for us in your Son, and to be transformed by that and to bear fruit as we, we, we follow you in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I'm going to start by just asking a question. What, what would you think the goal of the story of humanity is? If, if history is his story, if history is a, a, a kind of unfolding narrative and a kind of epic story that's going somewhere what's the goal of it what's the what's the outcome it's being guided towards well according to what this book teaches a very good answer would be a renewed humanity restored humanity the, the bible tells a story of of creation being formed by god and then humanity being put in place to rule on God's behalf over creation, but humanity turning against, rebelling against God and his design and burning, torching, destroying the relationship with God and because of that, destroying humanity's own vocation, destiny, purpose, messing ourselves up. And, and the rest of the story, I mean, all of that happens in the first couple of pages. The rest of this book, you could say, is the story of God slowly but surely bringing about his plan to have the final word. 
to actually restore a fallen humanity and to create a people again on the earth who are truly reflecting him and who are the light in darkness. That, that, that ultimately the darkness doesn't triumph. That the God who began everything by saying, let there be light, and yet creation was plunged into darkness, this same God is able to ultimately still have what he intends. Light breaks out. And it comes to a point in various places in this long, epic, sweeping story where you see that kind of theme poking its nose above the surface. And you see, ah, yes, that's where it's all going. Another reminder, thank you. Another reminder of where this is all going. Places like where Jesus speaks to the, to the crowds of followers in the Sermon on the Mount and says to them, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. And G Jesus sees it happening in front of him. He sees what his father had intended. He sees what he's been sent to accomplish taking place. And where we've got to in this part of the story is Jesus having come as a man to redeem and restore and bring about this new humanity on planet Earth through his death and resurrection. He's now gone to be with the Father, sent his Holy Spirit and sent his disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit to go into the world and to basically bring about this new humanity, to multiply, just like at the beginning, go forth and multiply. As God spoke to the first man and the first woman and said, subdue the earth, multiply, fill the earth with my images. Jesus spoke to his apostles and said, go, fill the earth, fill the earth with this new humanity that's restored in my image, filled with my spirit, transformed in the inward place to become on the outward an expression a light to the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. It's, it's seen, it's expressed, it's, it's what the prophets described in the Old Testament. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And kings will, will come to your dawn. The, the people all over the world will see the people of God and say, that, that is what we are meant to be. You are the true humanity. How can we be part of what you are? The, the dream that God has always had is a restored humanity, even a restored city. And when you get to the very end of the Bible, you get it described, this, this, this new Jerusalem, this city, this city that God had been building and intending from the beginning all along. This has been his plan. And he's wisely, sovereignly, providentially ordained and worked even against the grain of our rebellion. He's worked that together for the glorious purpose that he always intended. A glorious humanity, a glorious city, a human city with God at the heart of it, with God present amongst the people who were restored and happy with him forever. And while we wait for that ultimate kind of culmination, that ultimate wedding, as the Bible describes it, when it will all come together, Jesus and his bride, the people of God, 
while we're in this stage of looking forward, looking forward, looking forward, we live in the stage that we share with, with the apostles. We're in the same era that the apostles were in. It seems a long time ago, but nothing ultimately has changed. We are still in the stage where we get to establish, even in this present age, now, ahead of time, these kind of early versions of that restored humanity that will one day fill the earth. We get to populate planet Earth with little pockets, little communities, little colonies, if you like, of heaven. That's what we're doing. We're kind of showing the world through the church, through local churches that we establish and plant in different cities, what the city of God is like, even within the city of man. Now, the reason I'm giving you so much background here and trying to put all of this in the context of the grand sweep of the Bible story is, is actually because this letter to the Philippians makes so much sense when we understand that background. Philippi itself, the, the letter is written to a church that Paul had started a few years before in a city that was itself a colony of Rome. That's, that was its identity. It was established amongst uh, uh, people who, who didn't know Rome. And what the Romans did was they established certain cities as kind of special, special showcases. They, they, they had conquered huge, huge sweeping uh, areas of territory all across the ancient world. The Roman Empire was vast. But what they did in order to establish not just their rule, but their culture, not just their military dominion at the point of a sword, but try to say, look, this is how life should be lived. This is true humanity under Caesar. This is how to be human according to Rome. And the way they would do it would be establishing cities like Philippi. Philippi is a, is a city that's become that kind of a showcase. It's a Roman colony and it's very kind of conscious of its, of its status the people there would have seen themselves as Roman citizens. That was a special deal. That was, that was kind of elite. That meant you were on the upper tier of society. You were, you were, you were free. You were not a slave. And you were kind of card carrying. You had the, the right passport. You had the right visa. You had, you had the right connections as well. You, you, were, you were on the ladder at a fairly high rung. You were a citizen of Rome. And that was good. You were climbing the right direction. And Philippi was full of that, full of that sense of self-congratulatory uh, uh, status as, as a, a place of Roman culture, Roman prestige. And, and then comes this, this kind of <laughs> probably limping, uh, you know, Jewish, Jewish preacher uh, who who's, who's looks a little beaten up, and a little bit hard-bitten and, and, and well-traveled, comes in proclaiming Jesus. And, and strangely, a community starts to form around the message that he's, he's preaching. And now Paul is writing from prison years later, and he says to them in this very letter, our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a saviour. Jesus is saying to these people who knew all about citizenship, they knew all about urban identity. He's saying, no, no, no. You are not actually what Caesar thinks you are. You Christians, you followers of Jesus. Caesar has his urban dream of Philippi. God has his urban dream of the church. 
You are God's urban dream. You are, you are the city of Jesus. Yeah, I know you're in Philippi, but you're the city of Jesus within the city of Philippi, within the city of Caesar. You get to demonstrate <laughs> to the world not what Caesar's culture is like. You get to demonstrate what Jesus' culture is like. That's who you are. That's what you express. And that's why I'm writing to you, to remind you of your identity, to help you on your way with it, and to help prepare and bring about that kind of thriving, living, life-giving <laughs> community that Jesus wants to establish. So this is what we have uh, in this letter. Let me point out some things about this community uh, in the rest of this message that we can see just from these first verses, these 11 verses of the letter, help us to see something of the kind of community Paul is aiming to establish there in Philippi. First of all, this is a subversive community. I kind of been hinting that, I suppose, by what I've already been saying. What do I mean by subversive? I guess I kind of mean rebellious. I mean, it, it, it's, it's part of the identity of the people of God in this present age. While we are living through this time, where we, we live in the time that the Bible calls this present darkness in Ephesians chapter 6, this present time of darkness. It's a, it's, the world is not as it should be. We know that. You know that, don't you? We all know that. The Bible acknowledges it. The world isn't as it's supposed to be. One day it will be set completely right. The judge will come and say, enough. We will set everything straight. This present time, it's not right. We don't see all things as they should be. But we do see Jesus. We, we do, there is a community that sees him. And those who see him, who belong to him, are loyal to him and not to this present age. And so there's a certain misalignment with our age. We will always feel that in some way. If we follow Jesus, we don't follow the world. We don't. You cannot do both. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus said so. You will feel it from time to time, at least as a Christian. You'll feel your, your sense of, I, I don't quite belong. I do, but I don't. This is my father's world, but it's a world that's been monstrously distorted. And I, I know that I don't completely belong to it. And one day it will be set straight. But while I'm waiting, I'm kind of a rebel. I'm kind of an outsider. I'm an outlier. I'm subversive. Okay, so how do we see that? Oh, look at the way even Paul describes himself. Opening verse from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. A slave, a doulos. Is the, 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 your, the translate, we, we heard the word servant. It's quite a mild word. It's bond servant. It's more like a slave. Paul is writing from prison as a slave of Jesus Christ. Who's he writing to? He's writing to citizens of Rome. But Paul is comfortably, casually, <laughs> very assertively, describing himself as an outsider, as a slave. He said, okay, I'm writing to you as an apostle, but he doesn't actually name himself as an apostle. It's very interesting that Paul, an apostle, which means fairly established authority to, to plant and oversee and serve churches <coughs> with a certain kind of spiritual authority. Paul doesn't mention that in this letter, not at this point. He, doesn't, he does do that in other letters. If you look through most of the other letters that Paul writes, to churches or individuals, nearly all of them, he says straight away, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. He says so sometimes because he needs to. Sometimes he needs to say, look, guys, just 
to be clear, Jesus did send me. I do have authority in this situation. I want you to hear that. He will sometimes say that. In this case, he doesn't. Now, he doesn't need to because his relationship with the Philippians isn't being tested in that way. He doesn't need to. And he's actually feeling very relaxed and happy just to, just to write to them in a different tone, if you like. But I also think it's interesting that he, he seems to undermine the values of Philippi by really referring to himself as the opposite of someone with prestige and status. I'm a slave. I'm a bondservant. I'm in prison. And later on in verse 7, he even draws attention to that to, for their sake. He says, you have become partakers with me in my imprisonment. <laughs> I'm in prison. Yeah, you guys, you kind of, you're in prison with me, aren't you? Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're close. We're tight. You guys are, you, you, I feel like you're with me in this. And I'm with you. You know, we're, you're on my side, you people. You're outliers as well. You're rebels too. You're subversive too. You're, you're not going with the narrative of Philippi. You're not bought in. You haven't drunk the Kool-Aid. You're, you're with Jesus, aren't you, you people? And so Paul is, is eager in different ways, various ways, subtle ways perhaps, to just remind, to express again to these people, look, guys, you, you're, you're on the same journey as outsiders. You're on the same journey as Jesus who came amongst us not to be served, but to serve, not to climb the ladder, not to seek status, not to belong, not to be accepted, not to get clicks and likes and follows, not, not to become something great in this passing evil age, this present darkness. Jesus didn't come to make it big in this world. Oh, this world, this world will pass away. The world will be inherited by the meek, Jesus said so, the meek will inherit the earth. The, the humble, the, the outsider, the ones who are prepared to be numbered with the, the crucified one, the, the embarrassed one, the crucified one, the shocking shame and torment of the cross, naked hanging on a tree that he was nailed to. For Romans, that was, ugh, it wasn't just unpleasant, it was, it was something to make them wretch. And to be receiving a letter from someone in a dungeon is not, a, it's not cool. It's kind of cool for Brightonians. We quite like to see ourselves as nonconformists. We're quite into that. Yeah, I got a letter from this guy, this political prisoner. Yeah, I got a letter from him. Yeah, I, he's, he's this guy, total outsider. He's, he's been really cast off by society. And yeah, me and him, we're quite close. That's, that's not ancient <laughs> Roman, that's not the, that's, that's Brighton, all right, and, and Camden and Shoreditch and, and a lot of that. It's kind of hipster, but, but listen, that's not the culture here. He's, he's rubbing their noses in it. He's like, yeah, you belong to the, the dungeon if you follow Jesus. Not cool, not cool, not cool. So be careful how much you buy into the narrative of this present age. What's acceptable? What's in? What's out. Be careful how you use that. If you find yourself in, you find yourself with clicks and likes, okay, that can be useful. God could use you with that, but you be careful. It's very seductive. Very seductive. It will, it will, if you're not careful, it will distract you from who you really are because you're called to inherit something far better than passing clicks and likes and follows. You're, you are going to inherit the earth, you'll judge angels. 
You have citizenship in heaven from where we await a saviour. Your eternal destiny is far greater. And this gives the lie to the charge people sometimes make. Christianity is of the establishment. You know, even Karl Marx. Religion is the opiate of the peoples, the masses, who turn away from the real challenges and sufferings they face because they've been fed religion. Christianity belongs to those who would peddle just sort of distracting things from a place of power. That Christianity allies itself with power, with the state, with those in positions of, of authority. Doesn't seem so. In fact, if you read the New Testament, it becomes more and more silly that kind of concept. It's contemptible, it's daft, because the true, absolute, tightly bound roots of the Christian faith, the, 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 at the very core of what it is, from the very beginning, it's an, it's, <laughs> it begins in dungeons. It begins on a, on a, on a hill with crucifixes. It, it, it's, this is the core, this is, this is the roots. And, and through history, that's been the case. And very often, our kind of attempts at being rebellious, our Brightonian attempts to be nonconformist, oh, I'm such a rebel, <laughs> they're a little shallow. Because what we're normally doing is we're pointing the finger and we're saying, yeah, we rebel against them. They're the problem. Those people, the system, the system man, the society man. And the Bible goes way deeper than that. Jesus is way more radical than that because he doesn't let us do that. He does more like what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said when he said the line of good and evil doesn't, it doesn't, isn't out there. It goes through every human heart, everyone, including you and me, every single one of us. And maybe you've never thought of it like this. I urge you to. It needs to face the reality that we individually, each one of us, we have to deal with God ourselves and deal with the fact that we've turned against him. We're the problem. The darkness is in here. That's what Paul had discovered. Paul thought he was a goodie. He was a good guy. He was against Jesus and the, the, these bad Christians. And he was an activist dealing with them until he met Jesus and realized, man, I've been the problem all along. And that's a big shock for us sometimes. When we get to know God, we get to realize, oh, wow. There were things in here, there were problems in here that I wouldn't have even known about, wouldn't have noticed, would have denied them and pushed them down and ignored them. But I can't when I meet Jesus. Because this is the truly subversive religion, if there is such a thing. Let's look really quickly, a couple other things that we see here. It is a miraculous community. It's a gloriously miraculous community. From the beginning, Paul didn't even mean to go to Philippi. He was trying to go to Bithynia. He was trying to travel through what's called, what was called Asia, what we now call Turkey. He was in Galatia. He was traveling from place to place. And he thought, I've got my work cut out. I'm, I'm here in ancient Turkey doing a lot of work, planning a lot of churches. I know where I'm going next. And then God interrupted him. He didn't feel peaceful about where he was going. He felt, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. Very confusing time. Suddenly, he gets a vision, a dream at night. A man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. He knows that God's speaking to him. He travels to Macedonia, finds the city of Philippi, wanders into the city trying to think, how do we start a church here? How do we start a church in Europe? Christianity hadn't got to Europe. It hadn't reached Europe yet. This is the first European church in Philippi. Wow. And Paul gets to Europe. And he's looking around for people to start a church with, for people of peace. He finds a lady called Lydia, 
and she's, she's kind of got a Jewish background or interested in the Jewish faith. And he starts to talk to her about Jesus. And it says in the Bible, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. It doesn't say, Paul did really well. Paul explained it so well that Lydia was persuaded by his excellent arguments. No, he said the Lord opened her heart. She was transformed because God stepped in. Later on, Paul and Silas, his friend, they're, they're, they're just traveling through the city, getting to know other people, I expect. Another lady um, starts to yell at them because she's got an evil spirit inside her. She starts screaming at them. And Jesus, uh, Jesus, Paul turns around and casts the evil spirit out of her, tells her to go. She's set free. Her bosses, who make money out of her because she's got occult power, she's clairvoyant, and she can fill a, fill a room with people who pay money, they are furious because she can't do it anymore because she's got this evil spirit gone. And so they have Paul and Silas locked up in prison, which is kind of crazy. How do you get to just throw a guy in prison because he broke your business down? Well, they're in prison. They're in a dungeon. And while they're in this dungeon, there's an earthquake. <laughs> All of the prisoners' chains are cut loose by the earthquake. The jailer realizes that the earthquake means the prisoners are free. He's about to kill himself, draws his sword to stab himself to death. Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And the man says, how do I become a Christian? Which is an interesting response to, uh, to that situation. But that's what happens next. He basically says, what do I have to do to be saved? Paul shows him how to be a Christian. He teaches him about Jesus. He goes back to his house, teaches his family about Jesus. He says they were all baptized. This whole jailer's family is baptized into the faith. Lydia is baptized into the faith. As far as we know, that demonized lady was probably baptized into the faith. Little church started. I reckon if you said to the apostle Paul, who started that church? He would have said, Jesus did. He wasn't even planning on going there. The whole thing was sovereign. It was sovereign. God just showing up. Earthquakes, exorcisms, God opening the heart of a young woman, a, a transformation in the, in, the, in the life and family of a, a probably a pretty violent jailer. It's so wonderful when God breaks in, and God does break in. And Paul talks like that when he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I thank my God, back to verse 3, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are, for you will make my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's so aware of God's powerful work, God's initiative, God's involvement. It has been God that's done it. It's been the living God that's built this church. And if it's God that started it, it's God that will finish it. How comforting that is for us in our own lives. The difficulties we go through, and this church will have been going through all kinds of new challenges and difficulties, just like we do in our lives and we as a church. And in all of our thinking and praying and responding, we must hold on with Paul to the confidence that, that, that we get from knowing God's sovereign prior work. God began this thing. God began. We can give thanks. God, you started. All that I have is because you got me here. Look back on your life. All the things that you can look back and say, God, thank you for this. All the things that you look back on and say, these, these have been blessings. Perhaps in family life, perhaps in financial situations, perhaps in your health situations, perhaps in career, 
the things that you've been able to do with your life, the work you've done, the things you've achieved. When you look back, you'll see often, you'll see that was the unmistakable hand of God. God did that. God broke in. And it gives you comfort. You help, it helps you to realize if he began this work, he will bring it to completion. It's grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home, as John Newton put it in his famous hymn. This is our hope. And it's also uh, the shocking reality, because you know, as Christians, we often have to face the fact that Jesus turns our lives upside down. Jesus interrupts life. There's nothing predictable, ultimately. Uh, well, there's nothing humdrum in the, the, the worst sense of predictable about following Jesus. If you follow Jesus, it's because he's interrupted your life, right? If you really are a Christian, you know what I mean, don't you? He's interrupted your life. You used to be steering this thing. You used to be at the wheel of your life, didn't you? Do you remember those days? <laughs> you used to think you were in charge. Do you remember that? Some of you remember that. I remember that. As a very young person, this vague idea I had. I remember as a teenager, I even imagined it again. I thought for a few years, I thought, yeah, I think I'm in charge of my life. What a joke that was. It was a, I had to come to the point of realizing, no, 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 no. That doesn't even help. That doesn't work. I, I need to give the wheel over. Jesus, please have authority. Take responsibility. Take leadership in my life. Lastly, does that make him complacent? Paul is not complacent. With the knowledge that God will bring to completion what he's begun in this church, he doesn't become lazy. He's not passive and apathetic. Paul, look at the way he prays, the way he yearns for them. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Paul, in, in Philippians, just these opening verses, is already showing his profound sense of earnest responsibility for the ongoing destiny of this church. So this is a community, as we said, that's it's, it's a subversive community. That was the first point. The second point, it's a miraculous community. The third point, it's a community with destiny great destiny. And let me just finish by saying this. Paul's prayer for them is that they don't just survive as Christians, but they truly become this fruitful, this, this pure and blameless demonstration of the goodness and the love of Jesus in the city of Philippi. He's praying for their maturing, for their love to abound more and more, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Filled with the fruit. He wants the community to really become a lavish demonstration. That city we spoke of at the beginning, set upon a hill, the light of the world. Each church is destined, has the potential to become such a dazzling showcase of the glory of God. That's what they're destined for. That's what you and I have the opportunity to become as a church. And the church that we are here in this, even the church we planted in other cities, to become a demonstration of the glory of King Jesus. Through what? Well, the way he talks about it is actually the root of it, the root, the root of this whole process. And if you read the verses carefully, you see there's a kind of process, there's a kind of domino effect 
that's in play, where, where, which gets traced back in verse 9 to one thing primarily. It is my prayer that your love may abound. Your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Your love may abound. You see, ultimately, you and I don't get to become this extraordinary community by willpower, by working it up. I find that that doesn't happen. I have a little community that lives under my roof. I, I have a family. I've got five kids. And I've learned, you know, they're growing up now. I've learned over 18 years that I can't build this community, this loving community, 19 years, in fact. I can't create it by just appealing to the will. In fact, sometimes that makes it worse. Don't do that to your sister. Stop doing that to your brother. Very often when I say that, all I'm doing is putting ideas in their heads. Don't do what to my sister? That, oh, that's a, that's a great, oh, I'd love to do that to my sister. Because appeals to the will don't change anybody, really. We need better than that. I, I said to you before as a church, what I've discovered is that if I want, for example, my son to love my daughter, I need to see that my heart, my love for my daughter is in my son. Not that he just gets a rap on the knuckles when he doesn't treat his sister right. Now, discipline is necessary in our lives and God uses it, but his ultimate desire is that his heart is put within us. His love is shed abroad in us. His love is transforming us inwardly so that we love one another freely, joyfully, gladly, and what follows is this fruit of righteousness. So he prays, I'm praying your love will grow, your love will abound. This is the prayer that we need as a church always for ourselves as a community. God help us to become that glorious community. How? Because our love abounds, because you work God in us inwardly to, cre to, to create love for one another, love for you ultimately. That shows itself in obedience, in blamelessness, purity, the fruit of righteousness in our city. Where does it come from? Well, actually, if you're a Christian, it already is yours. Jesus, Paul says here, I'm praying that your love may abound. They already have it. He's just praying that it will abound. If you're a Christian, you've already got this in you. To some extent, you've got already received this. If you know Christ, you have the mind of Christ. Now, work it out. Work out your salvation, as we'll come to in a later verse. If you don't know Jesus, the love that you need, the, the, the life-transforming love comes not by your willpower, but by you seeing Jesus for who he is, seeing him in his glory, seeing him in his kindness, his righteousness, his greatness, his majesty, his transforming power. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen his love for you? We're going to take communion in our different sites. As the, the musicians come and lead you, as, as uh, the, the, the hosts meet of the meeting lead you, look for yourself at who Jesus is. Prepare your own heart and see how he will change you as you do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this letter. Thank you for what it teaches us. Help us to be transformed by the revelation of your glorious son as we look through these verses. In Jesus' name, amen.